Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. You're listening to a recording from The Vaults, a pre-show talk given by James Conlon, LA Opera's Richard Seaver music director and conductor of Carmen. Thank you very much and welcome to the um, the first uh, pre-performance talk of the season. Uh, it is the second performance of Carmen, but we don't do them on opening night, so this is, uh, this is the first time for me. And uh, I'm thrilled to see you all. How many of you, um, the ones I'm really interested to, how many of you have never seen Carmen? Excellent, okay. Uh, how many of you have, who have seen Carmen have seen a production at LA Opera? Okay, if you've seen it, it's gonna be different tonight. So we've changed it. We have uh, re revised the staging costumes. Uh, this is the first time I'm conducting it here. So um, there'll be some different elements than the ones you've used to seeing. And anyway, you can't hear Carmen too many times in your life. I hope those of you that are hearing it for the first time, um, this will be the first of uh, dozens of times. Um, it, it's really worth it. Now, um, my, my personal history with Carmen as I often tell you, the same boring story, started with me with, uh, when I was 13 years old. I was in the children's chorus of a production um, in New York where I was growing up. Uh, but I can say it is the opera that made me decide I wanted to conduct. Uh, how did that happen? Well, I had been in several operas up until then, and that time suddenly there was a conductor who was very dynamic and very charismatic and very exciting. And I could tell the difference between the somewhat, what I didn't realize at the time, boring and routine conductor and what it meant for a conductor to be exciting. And I was so excited by being in this opera that I couldn't contain myself. So the second night, uh, the uh, chorus master, we had a nice lady who taught us the notes and did everything, including giving, putting our makeup on. So she was putting my makeup on and she said, you know, could you do us a favor tonight and don't conduct during the fourth act while you're singing? <laughs> So I guess it had started already somehow that night. But I remember thinking that I, I, you know, my voice was just changed as that's what happens to little boys when they're 13. So I didn't know if I was going to have any voice at all when I grew up. So I thought, well, I'd love to be a baritone. And I thought of all the roles, including Escamillo, I'd like to do. And then I thought of all the roles. The tenor roles are so great. You know, there's Don Jose, I'd love to sing that. And of course, you know, I love Carmen too, but I knew that that was off limits. I wasn't going to be able to sing Carmen if, if, if and when I grew up. And so somehow I, with the logic that only a child can, can apply, I said, you know, there's only one way to do it all, and that's to conduct. And the decision was made during those, those performances of Carmen. So it goes back a long, long way. I did have the fortune when I studied at Juilliard to have a great teacher. His name was Jean Morel, and as you can tell, he was French. Uh, he uh, apparently conducted Carmen 375 times in his life, uh, and he he, I, since I was the one in the class who was the most interested in the opera, he spent some extra time with me on Carmen. And I have just uh, transcribed uh, notes that he gave me, almost illegible. I've had them for over 45 years. Um, and I'm going to get these somehow or other. I'm going to find a way to get them published. Because what they are, he was, a man, he was born in 1900. So uh, what you're getting is the impressions of a young man. And he was apparently... A, he was apparently uh, a sort of a child prodigy, he was a tympanist. And, um, but he heard these works, he heard Carmen, as a teenager, which means that the opera was only barely 35 years old, 40 years old. So there's a lot contained in there because the, you know, the 
idea of what music means and is changes over the course of time, and it's lucky if you have a, sometimes a, du a more direct contact with, uh, with that generation. So um, I conducted it at the Met uh, back in 1979 and in Paris during my years in Paris. Now, uh, this is called an opera comique. Now, what's an opera comique? Okay, the, the title suggests that it's funny, but it isn't always funny. And so there's a definition, and there are two terms. There's opera comique, which is a place, and there's opera comique, which is a genre, it's a form. The opera comique is a place, and you'll find it in Paris, strangely enough. That's where it was created, and it still exists to this day. It's a beautiful theater. Uh, it's had various theaters over the course of history. But it was always con considered a different type of opera from La Grande Opera. Now, you had these big, enormous, serious operas, but then you had operas that uh, were more for the family, and uh, they said it was particularly for the emerging bourgeoisie in the 19th century, so that young ladies and young men could meet there, usually under the, uh, under the patronage of their parents and families, to meet each other to decide who might be a good marriage candidate. So there was a so very social aspect to this, and so the entertainment was light. It was not meant to challenge you, um, and I'm going to come back to that because that's why this opera is, in addition to being the, probably the most well-known and popular opera in the world, it was also a very shocking opera at the time, and especially in the place. But what is opera comique, the genre? Well, that is a form, and it is an opera where there's an alteration of music and speaking. And so you speak, you talk, you sing. You speak, you sing. And th this form has other, uh, other, uh, other cousins in other countries. Now, we s how many of you saw the abduction from the Seraglio last year? Okay, that was a Zingspiel. That was dialogue music, dialogue music. Um, the Germans called it Zingspiel, sometimes they called it Spieloper. Um, operetta is a form of this, speak, sing, speak, sing. Gilbert and Sullivan is another, is a British form of that. And of course, the American musical is uh, is, a, is a case of that. So that's the form, and that's the form in which we're going to encounter it tonight, sort of. I'll explain sort of later. Now, Georges Bizet was born in 1838, so you can place him. He died in 1875. The, uh, the, if you can do quick mathematics, that's 36 years, exactly the age of Mozart when he died. Carmen was premiered on March the 3rd, 1875. Bizet died on June the 3rd, 1875, exactly three months after the premiere. He was very disappointed at the reception, although the audience seemed to like it. There were very serious criticisms. He was kicked around in the press, as is often the case. So he actually died discouraged and sad. He had no idea that his opera was, in the words of Tchaikovsky, this opera will be played when all of us are long gone. And that's exactly what has happened. If it is not the most popular opera in the world, it is, a, it is an opera that when people say opera, they think of Carmen. It is emblematic of our art form. Um, think of what we have in this one masterpiece. Now, you're going to be lucky this year, and you're going to hear another opera by Bizet in a month, and that's The Pearl Fishers. It's a much earlier work. Um, but just think we have this great masterpiece what we might have missed. If Verdi had died at that age, he would not yet have written Rigoletto, Traviata, or Trovatore, or anything else. That's where we would, he, he would have stopped. Wagner had not yet completed Lohengrin, hadn't even 
began to write The Ring, Meistersinger, Tristan, or Parsifal. Puccini would not have written La Boheme, Tosca, or Butterfly. That's what the world lost when this man died so young. Um, so the story was taken from a, um, a short story, novella, by a man named Prospe Merimee. Uh, he's slightly older, 1803. He died in 1870. He had already died at the time of the, uh, of the, of the opera. He did not know that his story, which wasn't particularly important at the time, was going to become immortalized by a composer. Uh, he was a very interesting man. He was a writer. He was an archaeologist. He was a historian. Um, where did he find this story? According according his own testimony, he was told this story by a countess in Spain. He used to travel for his work, um, which I'll get to in a second. And there's a certain countess de Montijo, who she ever, we don't know, told him the story of uh, this, what more or less is the story of Carmen. In this story, however, the female was not a gypsy. Now, this is a story that becomes a gypsy, and by the way, I'm told that gypsy is now not the correct way to refer to the members of the race Roma. So I'm going to try to say, remember to do that, Roma, retraining myself, because gypsy is now considered a derogatory term. So Carmen was, was, Roma, was not Roma, but he decided to to, to turn her into that. Why? Because he had been studying the Romani language and culture, and he decided to assign that to her. So um, that, that reflects his own interest. He, was, uh, he had studied languages. He learned Russian when he was very young. He translated Pushkin's uh, poem, The Gypsy, or Roma, or uh, a further example of his fascination. He wrote, um, uh, he wrote with an amalgamated style, drawing from various texts. He translated The Queen of Spades. He uh, corresponded with Pushkin, uh, all in Russian. Uh, in between 1830 and 1860, he got his day job. He was, uh, he was an inspector of French national monuments. And he said it per perfectly suited him because uh, he could travel, he had a good stipend, and because he was lazy, that was an easy job for him. So, um, he, but he was responsible for certain things, like partially responsible for um, redoing the facade of Notre Dame. He, together with Georges Sand, the famous uh, author or authoress, um, together discovered the uh, unicorn, the uh, the unicorn tapestry, which at the beginning of the whole series, and that series eventually became complete or near to complete and, and can be seen today in the Musée Cluny. So he had, a, he had a lot of other functions and he was outstanding at them. Um, there's an official database of French monuments and it bears his name. It's called the Bas Merimee. So if you want to know something about French monuments, I guess you can go online and put Bas Merimee and you can find out something about that. So, Interesting man. Now, what is the essential problem with Zingspiel or op opera comique? Um, it's the constant dis uh, dis uh, uh, dissociation between speech and music. And this is troubling and problematic to, um, to sometimes the tastes of uh, opera lovers and lovers of theater. Now, E.T.A. Hoffman uh, wrote in 1816, that's well before, it's half a century before uh, before Bizet, he said, opera is rent asunder by dialogue is a monstrous thing. And we tolerate it only because we're used to it. So there were two forms, even back as far as the beginning of the 19th century. You, you, you know, the dialogue, music, dialogue, music, or the music, which is continuous. And as I'll show you later, we've talked about recitative in other contexts, in the Italian operas. That was a way to get a lot of information to the audience, but never stop music. Um, but the 
opera comique form had a problem when pieces traveled. Now, so what did they do when they traveled? Uh, the first stop, for instance, for Carmen was Vienna. Uh, you wrote recitatives. In other words, who wanted to hear, and some people still feel this way, who wanted to hear uh, people speaking French who are not French, who don't speak French, to an audience that also doesn't speak French? This is, this is an essential problem. And um, it, it is still to this day somewhat of a problem. Um, now, the, what happened was because Bizet died almost immediately afterwards, he didn't have the time to write the recitatives to go to Vienna. So they were written by a friend of his, a composer named Giraud. And it was in this form that it traveled the world and became known everywhere. Within three years, um, the opera had gone to Vienna, it had gone to Brussels, it had gone to London, it had gone to St. Petersburg, and even arrived in New York um, at the American Academy, that's before the Met, uh, that was 1878. By 1884, the Met, um, the Met started doing Carmen. Well, if you go on the Met website, uh, you can learn that the, it is the third opera in terms of uh, how many times it's been performed at the opera. La Boheme is still in the lead. Uh, Aida is number two. Carmen is number three with 1,001 performances to date. I'm proud of the fact that performances 763 through 773 were conducted by me in 1979. So a small part of that. And that, when I conducted at the Met, it was all recitatives. There was no spoken dialogue. So it was a gr it become, in effect, a grand opera. And almost everybody did that. Well, around the 80s, suddenly it came back into vogue to go trying to do the opera comique. Uh, now, France always did the Opera Comique. In fact, there's a wonderful recording made in 1848, Opera Comique. But it's beautiful to listen to all of those French uh, actors and uh, actresses speaking French. So, when I did it at the Paris Opera, where I was music director for nine years, I did the Opera Comique form, all dialogues, no recitative. So, I've done both of them. Um, now, the problem, uh, the, the, why did the Met go back to doing the Recitatives after they had already tried doing the dialogues was that two uh, practical problems that they have international casts and you know rarely have a total French cast in fact never so it became a question of whether this was really worth it the other thing is um, you know the, the Chandler Pavilion is pretty big the Met is even bigger in order to hear the dialogues everybody's got to shout and so the combination of these two factors has left some legitimacy for doing recitatives still with the orchestra. Now, we're doing a mixture, and I have, uh, uh, for various reasons, uh, I kept as much dialogue as we could. There are, however, some of those recitatives which are actually quite good and effective. Not all of them. Giro was not a composer on the level of Bizet, but he did succeed in some cases in being able to write something that was, you know, very useful. So uh, we have a mix. So you're going to hear some speaking, um, and you're going to hear some recitative. Now, uh, for those of you, for those of you who are seeing this for the first time, um, I always give a little rundown of who's it, what, what the person, the personalities and the characters are. Um, for those of you who know the opera well, seen it a lot of times, just will serve as a little bit of a reminder. It's basically the story of a man and a woman. What else is new? 
Most operas are the story of a man and a woman. Now, the woman, Carmen, whose name the opera bears, uh, is a gypsy. This is in Spain. It takes place in Seville, just as Don Giovanni does. And we're going to be coming back to that in a moment. Uh, it's in Seville. She is, she you know, lives in the mountains like many of the Roma race. She lives by her wits, and she is uh, characterized by, uh, she is an extraordinary individual. We'll come back to that in a moment. And she's been interpreted in many different ways over the course of time. But there's one thing that everyone agrees about. She is very sensuous. She is a seductress. And she should, in theory, be the sexiest woman you can imagine. Now, that's Carmen. Uh, she works at the moment in a cigarette factory. Now, she hasn't been doing that all of her young life. She does whatever she needs to do. But at this moment of the opera, she's working in a cigarette factory. Now, the story is about her meeting uh, a young soldier. His name is Don Jose. He's an innocent fellow, sort of. He comes from the country. He's come to Seville. Why? Because he's a very innocent guy. He's a nice guy, too. He has a nice mother. We hear about her. Um, but he got a little angry one day while he was playing at sports, and he hit his rival, and he happened to kill him. Uh, so he had to leave the little village and go to Seville and become a, um, a, a soldier. But he's a very conscientious, and he means very, very well. So, but the story is really going to be about him and how gradually through the uh, relationship and the actions and his interaction with this temptress, Carmen, he is going to, uh, he's going to, his whole life is going to become degenerate. So he's the character that develops. Carmen doesn't develop. She is fully grown, like coming out of, uh, like Venus, being born complete. She is her own personality, and she doesn't really change. She is honest, except that she steals, but she steals. No, but that's, there's a different concept of, of property amongst the Roma, so they feel that everybody has a right to anything, and she does steal. But she's honest, and most of all, she's honest with herself. She believes in destiny, and she is true to her beliefs. Now, that's, they're the main story. Everybody, everybody else is incidental to this story. We only have them there because they tell us a little bit about Don Jose or about Carmen. Now, um, then there's another woman, there are several other women, but the most important one is a young lady named Micaela. Uh, she's from the little town. In fact, she, has been, uh, she was supposedly orphaned, and she was brought up by Don Jose's mother, and Don Jose's mother has chosen her to marry Don Jose, and Don Jose has promised, so he's, he's betrothed. Now, um, Micaela, her name is, she is a creation of Bizet and his librettists. She, may, she does not exist in Prosper Merimé's novel at all. Why did they create her? One, to make a foil for Carmen. In other words, you're going to have this bad woman, wicked, evil, temptress, devil. You're going to have a good, sweet, innocent. Because that's what people at the Opera Comique came to see. They always wanted to see nice, young, pure women who reflected what they thought they were themselves. And that's what they want a nice story. And it's going to end up happily when they're going to, she's going to marry somebody. So if it were a normal Opera Comique, she and Don Jose would get married and that would be the story. But we all know that's not going to be the story. So Mikael is there as a contrast. Um, there, the other big character is the Toreador, Escamillo. Everybody probably at some point or other has heard the Toreador song. I heard it in music appreciation class when I was 10. Uh, but we all did. So Now, his name is Escamillo. He, too, does not really exist in, in the uh, story. He's referred to. His name is Lucas in the story. But he doesn't really have any importance. She was just 
dating him at one point. That's all. Now, in this opera, she's going to be in love with him at the end of the opera. So you have these four main characters. Everybody else after that is incidental. Carmen has two Roma friends. Their names are Fasquita and Mercedes. Uh, there's a captain. Uh, there's a... Yeah, I guess he's a captain, Don Jose Superior. His name is Zuniga. You will see him interacting. There's another soldier named Morales. And there are two smugglers. Their names are Remandalo and Don Cair. Um, now, they're, they, Carmen, at night, leaves the factory. She goes up to the mountains, and she helps this group of smugglers. So the, all five of them, Frasquita, Mercedes, Carmen, and Remendado, and Dainker, they're in the smuggling business. So um, that's, your, that's your cast. Now, um, sometimes, because this is supposed to be entertainment, um, they found ways to make their characters sing and dance. Well, who loves to sing and dance? Carmen. So Carmen is going to dance three times and sing at the same time. She does the Abadera in the first act, which you also pr have probably heard. She has a seguidilla in the end of the first. And then there's a big dance with her, with her girlfriends um, in the second act of the opera. And it's all full of parades and chorus. The chorus are soldiers. They're bystanders. They're women working in the cigarette factory. They're bullfighter, the bullfighters' groupies. They're gyps, uh, Romas. They're smugglers. They're citizens of Seville. They're aficionados of the bullfights. The chorus is omnipresent. And they sing constantly because that's what people wanted at the opera comique. Now, Bizet and his librettists sanitized the, the version of Mary May because they were really unsavory characters. Don Jose turns out to be a really rotten guy, and Carmen is much less sympathetic, if not less fascinating, in the story. But he, they cut out a lot of the really bad things, and the smugglers, instead of being the really low lives that they were, they're sort of comic rogues, so as not to shock the audience too much. But the form is, is conventional. There are arias, duets, quintet, vocal ensembles, chorus, um, all separated in different pieces. The Bizet serves up a violent, brutal, and realistic story in a form that's not supposed to do that and to an audience that was not expecting it. And so that's why there were a lot of problems. The femme fatale is a big deal in French literature, French 19th century. Um, it all started with uh, Manon, Manon, if you may know the operas Manon, which are late 19th century, but the story comes from, written by a priest, by the, by the way, Abbe Prévost. Um, he wrote the story in the, in the 18th century, and she becomes the prototype. Carmen is another femme fatale. There'll be at least two more operas, three more operas on the subject of Manon en Zalome. We saw Zalome last year as a form of femme fatale. Lulu by Berg is a form of fatale. Even Melisande, whom I hope you will meet in the next few years, uh, is a sort of femme fatale in her way, too. Now, some years ago, I was, in fact, many years ago, it's almost 30 years ago in Paris, I turned on the radio, and there was a roundtable discussion, all music musicologists and very erudite opera fans, and the discussion was, what would happen if Carmen met Don Giovanni? <laughs> Who would win? Okay, a sort of a silly question, but in fact, uh, it... it, it brought on a not-so-silly conversation. There were all sorts of opinions and banter and was delightful, but there was one point in which everybody agreed, no question, Carmen would win. And now, how are they the same? Well, they are the same. They are both masters of seduction. 
for various reasons and motivations, but they're the best in the business, let's say. Don Giovanni is supposed to be the most handsome bass baritone in the opera world, and if he isn't, we're disappointed. Carmen's supposed to be the sexiest soprano or mezzo-soprano in the, in the opera world, and if she isn't, we're disappointed. But they, they have come to become almost mythical. If you like to read myths, I always sort of sell you my article. It's called The Carmen Myth. You'll find it uh, in your program, shortened. You'll find it full length on, your, uh, on, the, on the web. Uh, either way, you might enjoy reading it. But there's a lot of discussion of Don Giovanni and Carmen, why they are similar, why are they different. They both have become myths. Um, Carmen. Uh, had no prehistory, Don Giovanni did, but all it was was a short story. Bizet took it, turned it into an opera, and it became a myth. She is now known beyond the opera world. Everybody knows something about Carmen and what she represents. Um, now, I brought my iPod. This is how the opera starts. Back at the beginning again. Okay. Now, like most preludes or overtures, it gives you uh, music that's going to come later in the opera. This is going to come to you at the fourth act, and it is the parade of all the Toreadors and all the bullfighters coming in and the crowd celebrating them. It's very lively music, it's very colorful, it's very brilliant. Uh, this is an opera where there is going to be one hit after the other. If, I mean, the melodic genius is the inspiration goes from the beginning to the end. There's barely a note of this opera that isn't beautiful, and it's very varied. You want to make me turn it just a touch? There you go. Now, one of the criticisms that was leveled against uh, was, was that this music was Wagnerian. Does anybody hear anything Wagnerian? Not me. Now, here's your famous Toreador song, also featured in the prelude. So we get Toreador big, but we haven't gotten Don Jose or Carmen in the prelude. But now we're going to get Carmen. Bizet interrupts this, and we get this. Minor key, you know something's bad. Listen to that motive. Consists of those that are two heavy thuds. Three times. This is the motive of fate or destiny. And it's going to be repeated again. This was a revolutionary piece of music at the time. Thud, thud, third time. Now, one of the individual... That's, if in music theory, if you know it, it's an augmented second don't worry about it if you don't know what that means, but it is an interval that is associated with exoticism. It is exo associated with a Arabic music. It is, uh, it is associated with Jewish music. It is associated, remember we talked about exoticism last year, Zalome, the abduction from Seraglio. The French were fascinated with 
the Middle East. Bizet uh, wrote several operas before he, uh, before he wrote Carmen. One takes in place in Ceylon, one takes in place in the Caucasus, one takes in place in Scotland. There's another opera about uh, Romas, there's a biblical opera, and there's another opera in Cairo. He was fascinated with this, and so Carmen is a continuation of this side. The exotic fascinated the French audience, and guess what? It fascinates everybody because we're always looking for something different. Now, that is a motive. Destiny, it also could be called Carmen, could be called either one. Did he repeat it? Yes. And that's why some people thought, oh, here's Wagner. Remember the light motifs from the ring? Here's Wagner, and they all hated Wagner. So look, look at how he uses this. She enters. You hear it? I hear it. Three times. Here's another one. Carmen speaks, we hear There's another one. The men say. I want to know that when is, when is she going to pay some attention to them? She has another plan. She's seen this young soldier there not paying any attention to her, and that's what interests her. And so, here she is. Here's her destiny. The thuds quietly. This is the moment that she's going to throw the flower at him. She's going to speak to him, and then she's going to throw the flower. Hey, compa, que fais tu là? Je fais une chaîne pour attacher mon épinglet. Ton épinglet? And she throws the flower. That's Maria Callas, by the way, who never sang the role on stage, but she recorded it. Now, here's another one. Carmen leaves the stage. Everybody leaves the stage. Don Jose is alone. You know he's already obsessed with her. Here's another one. skipped one here. Yes. Three times. Here it comes again. That is Don Jose sending. Don Jose has been visited by Micaela, who brought a message and some money and presents from his mother and a kiss from his mother. And in the midst of this, he says, of course, he's in love with Mikael, he's going to marry her, he says that, but he says, who knows what that demon who has been put in my path is. And so he refers to Carmen by the, the, the destiny. And the answer is, it's destiny that put them together. So he's troubled by that. Here's the, now this is when he's going to uh, at the end of the first act, Carmen, of course, has gotten into trouble. She's gotten arrested. Don Jose is put in charge of her to take her to prison. And, of course, she's going to seduce him into letting her free at, with a promise that if you come, if you let me free, I'll love you when you come to visit me in the mountains. Ah! Now, we only hear it once in the second act. 
in the second act, Don Chalzé goes up to the mountains and he tells her all about the flower that she threw at him. He kept it in prison with him for, for a month or two months, depending on the version. And he sings a very beautiful song. Here it is in the English horn. Now, this is the only time the destiny theme really appears in act two. He needs to go back to the barracks, and so he tells her that. She gets mad, she says goodbye forever, and out he goes, and we hear this. Now, listen to the violins, we're gonna hear that again. That is not the motive, but it is a variation of the motive. Listen to the rhythm. Bam, ba 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 bam, ba 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 bam. That's a variation. One more time. And now it shows up in Act Three. Things are going badly with Don Jose and Carmen. They've been together for a while. He's he's unhappy. And she's getting bored of him. And it's time to play cards. But these girls don't play cards the way we play cards. They put those cards out and they read their fortunes. Frasquita and Mercedes have good fortunes. Carmen, however, has another one. And as she starts to flip the cards, you hear... comes back that the other girls sing about their good fortune. Carefully, cellos on the bottom. Listen again. Horns to one more time. So you see it's very subtle sometimes. End of the act three. Don Jose is going to go back to see his mother, but we know destiny is going to intervene. And now we go into act four. Here comes Don Jose. Confrontation. Listen again. There it is. Winds up, and there they are face to face for what will become a final confrontation. And when he decides enough is enough, he 
You hear the Destiny theme. This, of course, is Placido Domingo. Repeating the Destiny theme over and over again. He said, so uh, I have lost everything and given my soul to eternal damnation so that you could go off with your lover and laugh at me while you're in his arms. Heavy stuff. Over and over and over again. Destiny, destiny, destiny. And then finally, he's killed her. He turns to police who are not there in our production. You can arrest me. C'est moi qui l'a tué. It's me who has killed her. And then he sings, Oh, my Carmen, my adored Carmen. I've given you something now to hold on to throughout the entire work so that you will follow this and use the very, the, the, the very clever way which Bizet uses that motive. That is, however, really the only motive. There's a few, there's a few things that are used for remembrance. There's one, the mother of, of Don Jose. She comes in twice as a piece of music, but that's the only motive. Now, it starts very lightly. It's an opera. You're gonna have beautiful melodies, light, happy, right at the beginning. Nothing could ever happen bad here, right? Here's the little children, the trumpet, changing of the guard. Don Jose is gonna come in, the first guard is gonna go out, and all the little children come and you see these little tots there running around? Those are gonna be the children following the guard. You get one melody after another. Here's the first example. This is a dialogue. This is the opera comique original version. So you see, music. Dialogues like that. This is unlike Italian opera. For instance, Mozart. This is a recitative. There's a harpsichord or a cembalo. A lot of text, but it's sung. Okay, so we've talked about that. Here's another, there's two types, the one with the harpsichord, and then there's the accompanied ones, which have orchestra. Here's a recitative with orchestra, also Don Giovanni. Here is a recitative, written by Giro. This is the recitative that corresponds with the dialogue you just heard. You will not be hearing this tonight. You'll be hearing the dialogue. And the, the guard goes off. And here's the theme of the children. Right? Now we're going to get this. This is an interesting one. You're going to get music and spoken at the same time. Il 
y a une jolie fille qui est venue te demander. C'est quoi le mélodrame Il a dit qu'elle reviendrait. Une jolie fille Oui. Elle chante mal d'habillée. I don't believe I even heard this music until the 1980s. I mean, I had already grown up with the with the the traditional recitatives conducted it. I'd never even heard these pieces. There are pieces you'll hear tonight, short excerpts that you may not recognize. Even those of you that have heard Carmen many times, some of them may be new to you because uh, they, were, they were taken out of the score, not by Bizet, but after he died, and they simply weren't put back in. This is the famous smoking chorus. You can see all those ladies smoking cigarettes. Very shocking, very daring in the opera comique. And you can see the smoke going up in the air. Carmen comes on and sings her famous Habanera. Habanera coming from Havana. That's the root of the word. It's popular dance, famous piece. Right? Maybe the shortened version now. Michaela comes and sees, uh, sees uh, Don Jose. My mother sent me. Your mother sent me to you. We were walking. We went to church. Listen to that music. It sounds like it's in a church. And then she says, this is the message from your mother. Now, this is a conventional uh, duet. It has... A, a, a first section, we're going to call it A. It's going to have a second section, we're going to call it B. It's going to have a third idea, which is going to call C. And then we're going to get A and B again. We see this in the Italian opera all the time. We've talked about it many times. Here it is. This is A. And this passage will be repeated in the third act when Michaela comes back again with a message from home. And Don Jose is happy. He says, I can see my mother. What wonderful. I see her all again. He's happy. That's the second part. That's B. He's happy, but he's preoccupied. This is C, the third part. We just heard this. Right? He's preoccupied because he's seen this woman, and she's troubling him now. But he puts it aside and he says, hey, send a message to my mother. And he sings what? A again. So we've had A, B, C, we've got A again. Now instead of Michaela singing to him, he sings to Michaela, tell my mother how much I love her. I'm such a good boy and I'm going to marry you and all's going to be fine. And then he reflects again together with Michaela how happy he is. Amen. Back where we started, right? A, B, C, A, B. You can follow that along tonight. It seems that everything is going to be fine, and they will get married at the end. But that wouldn't be the story, would it be? You know, if, if there weren't destiny, if there weren't a femme fatale, and if there weren't something very shocking, uh, that would have happened. But it's not going to happen. Now, if you've never seen it, I'm not going to tell you what happens from here on in. If you've seen it, that's okay. You know, somebody once said, nobody goes to La Boheme to see how it ends. What is wonderful is seeing the, the retelling the story and, you know, hearing an opera is one of the great characteristics, unlike other things, after you've heard it once, that it really, that's not the end of it. If you hear it a second time, it gets better. If you hear it a tenth time, it gets better. Um, I've conducted this opera, um, you know, 20 times or so, I don't know. 
It gets better every time I hear it and do it. If you don't like it tonight, if you like it, come back again. There are more performances. If you don't like it, then you must come back tonight. You must come back again because you'll hear a lot more the second time and you'll see how the story is. Story. It's, like, it's like a whodunit. If you, know, if you know the story and if you know how it's going to end, you will learn by each repeated hearing to see how it's constructed and how the composer got us from here to the end. And that is where the art is. And that, for me, I'm a professional. I do this for a living. That's the part I love because every time I go back to these, these pieces of music and these operas, I find things I didn't find before. I found a whole lot of them in the last few weeks here. And that is what's fascinating. And that's why opera has, uh, is such a fascinating art form. That's why Tchaikovsky said, this opera will be here when all of the rest of us are gone. This is an opera for the ages. If it's your first time, I hope you will have a great time. If it's your 10th time, I hope you'll have a great time. Thank you for coming. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.